so right before the summer, uh, my wife Kelly and I uh, did what most of us in this room have done before. I think most of us have been bored to the degree that you grab your remote control and you start flipping through, whether it's Netflix or um, DirecTV or whatever. So we, we started looking for a movie that we haven't seen that we think would be interesting to us. And all of us here have picked movies before where you're like, okay, this sucks like an airplane toilet. We're gonna keep moving. Um, this is not a good one. So we land, and I'll throw this picture up on the screen. We land on this, on this movie um, starring this woman, Maggie Smith. Now, some of you may recognize her from uh, Harry Potter, stuff like that. I love British comedy. I think British people have this really smart Alex, you know, style of comedy. So I'm thinking that this movie is gonna be incredible, incredible that I'm gonna laugh the whole time. It's a movie called The Lady in the Van. Anybody ever seen this movie before? Um, am I the only dweeb that's watched it? Awesome. So my wife and I dive into this movie and the first probably 10, 15 minutes, it's really difficult to stay focused. By the end of the movie, no exaggeration, I am a blubbering mess. And here's the reason why. Because Maggie Smith, Oscar award winning actress, absolutely per unbelievable per performance. She plays, next picture, this woman, a real lady named Mary Shepard. In fact, she demanded that you call her Miss Mary Shepard. And in 1974, Miss Mary Shepard in a really jacked up van, in fact, I have a picture of her jacked up van, that's her leaning into her van. In 1974, Mary Shepard pulled her van onto a street in, in, in a neighborhood north of London, and she began to make her way down that street. She literally was living out of her van. She would live out of her van. She would pull stuff out of her van during the day. Um, neighbors would be upset with her. They would try to make her move. And because they would get so upset with her, she was constantly having to move her van. Authorities would have to come, tell her to move. She would drive around the block until the authorities left and then come back, park in front of another house. At some point in 1974, she parked her van in front of a, a British playwright named Alan Bennett's flat. She parks in front of his flat. He comes out. He's, he's a kind guy. He notices that people are constantly being mean to her. He shoes them away. They develop um, a resemblance of a friendship. He says that she, she was unbelievably cantankerous, had no sense of humor, but he develops this relationship with this lady, Miss Shepherd, and begins to just try to befriend her. And at some point, Miss Shepard comes inside or comes to his door, knocks on his door, and, he, and she asked him this question. The authorities were ready to take her to jail and to run her out of this neighborhood, and she had an idea. She said, is there any way that I can pull my van, because the authorities could move her off the street, is there any way that I can pull my van into your driveway, because your driveway is private property, and I'll sit in your driveway in my van um, until the authorities, kind of all that kind of stuff dies down, and then I'll leave. And Alan Bennett says that he hesitantly, and he was very nervous about this, he decides to let her park her van on his driveway for a couple of days until the authorities you know, forget about her and move on. What was supposed to be a couple of days wound up being 15 years. Mary Shepard lived in Alan Bennett's driveway in her van for 15 years. Now, when I say she's living out of her van, everything this woman owned, everything this woman had ever eaten, she would defecate and urinate in the van, it stayed in the van. Every once in a while, 
she'd get out of the van, she'd empty her, you know, her poop. She would do that in his yard, okay? She would do that in his yard. She would throw things out in his yard, and she did that for 15 years. For 15 years. Every once in a while, she would knock on his door and ask if she could go to the bathroom. And he hesitated doing it because, and some of us have been around people that are in this state, she smelled so bad and she was so cruel. She wasn't thankful for anything that he was doing for her, but he would hesitantly let her in and he would say that the stench of Mary Shepherd would fill my flat for weeks just by, her, by him letting her in for just to use the bathroom. But one day, 15 years, in 19, she, she started living in his driveway in 1974. One day in 1989, a social worker came by, knocked on the back of the van, opened the back of the van, and Mary Shepard had passed away. Massive heart failure. She dies in his driveway in the back of the van. The authorities take her body away, and Alan Bennett, because the van is in his driveway, has the auspicious responsibility to do something with this van. So he begins to go through the things in the van. And he happens upon an envelope. And on the envelope, it is written, Mr. Bennett, if needed. And he opened the envelope, and inside the envelope was a street address. And he went to find out whose address this was. And it just so happened that that street address was to Mary Shepherd's brother's home. And he asked if he could have a meeting with him. And here's what he found out. College students, look. That Mary Shepherd had secrets. She had secrets. Because when Mary Shepherd was nine years old, she was a piano prodigy. One of the most gifted pianists at the age of nine in England. So gifted, in fact, that her parents shipped her to Paris to study under an incredible conductor named Cordeaux. She studied there for a couple of years. She studied there until something stirred in her and she believed that this gift to play the piano was a gift from God. And she decided at the age of 15 to join, to become a nun. So she goes to a monastery, she joins a nun, uh, she, she becomes, she joins the nuns, all right? <laughs> She's a nunnery, all right? She goes, she becomes a nun in this monastery. About a week after she had gotten into the monastery, she, she finds this piano by itself in a room. Nobody's there. She walks in and she begins to play this incredibly beautiful classical piece on this piano. Little did she know that one of the sisters was right behind her, comes up and slams the piano lid on her fingers and says to her, in this place, we pray, we confess, we chant, but we do not play instruments and we do not sing. And it was the last time at the age of 15 that she ever played the piano. She became so distraught that her parents at one point had her committed to an insane asylum. Eventually she got out. When she got out, she was driving a van one day and a motorcyclist hit her van. It wasn't her fault, it was his fault, but this young man on the motorcycle died. And something in her at that point snapped. And from that point until... She, at 1989, she was 75 years old when she died. She lived the rest of her life 
paranoid because this secret in her heart and in her mind, she had killed someone, she had broken the heart of God, and she couldn't use her gift. It's the power of secrets. It's the power of secrets. And isn't it interesting that we're all sitting here tonight, and this is what's true for all of us. I'm just going to make the assumption that nobody here is living in a van. Nobody here aspires. Nobody heard that story and goes, that's what I want to do with my life, right? Nobody wants to, you know what? I want to poop in a bag and, you know, no, nobody does that. Nobody aspires to that life. But isn't it interesting that regardless of where you are in, in your collegiate you know, aspirations or your, you as a young professional, that all of us in this room have secrets that nobody knows about and you live many way, in many ways and many times in an emotional, spiritual, intellectual van and prison? And it's all because... There are things in your life and there are things in my life that we think nobody needs to hear. And here's how I know that that's who we are because research tells us this, and we'll throw this up on the screen. Research tells us that Americans tell an average of 11 11 lies every week. So I want you to, right where you are, I want you to think about how many lies you've already told and it's Monday, okay? So you got to meet your quota, but Americans tell, <laughs> Americans tell 11 lies per week. That's on average. And some of us in this room, just by your countenance, you're giving yourself away because you're like, oh, I'm doing pretty good. And, and others of us, you're like, Duh! all right, right? Because here's what you know, that there is this thing inside of you that struggles When there is some sort of shame involved, when there is some sort of rejection involved, when there is some sort of abandonment thing involved, you quickly decide to make it a secret. In fact, I'm of the opinion that for most of us in this room, our secrets kind of of stay in this realm. It kind of looks like this. What we do is we we start thinking, if I'm honest, I'm going to be abandoned. If I'm honest with people about what I've done, what I'm thinking, what I, what I want to do, then nobody's going to want to be around me. And, and let's just be straight up. You may think you're really, really mature because you're in college, but you are still just like me because I am an old dude. All of us in this room are driven by this desire for acceptance. It's the most powerful thing in us. It's the reason why you're sitting beside who you're sitting beside right now. I watched you walk in as mature college students. And some of you are like, I'm not sitting down until my boys come in. I'm not going to sit down until my, hey, yay us. I'm not going to sit down until they, <laughs> they come in. Because, right, as mature as you are, you wouldn't dare sit down by yourself beside a total stranger. In fact, you were just a few minutes ago, hey, meet somebody around you. Isn't it interesting that most of us in this room didn't want to walk up to a total stranger and say Hello? especially you, all right, because because you're giggling, because all we do is go, hey, hey, we stay around our circle, but we won't talk to him, and here's the reason why, because we are so afraid of this word. We can't stand to feel like, I'm going to get it left out. And even more, if you've ever been honest, and the response wasn't exactly what you hoped, all the more reason why you want to keep secrets. 
It revolves around, if I'm honest, then I might be abandoned. And then there is this thing in all of us in this room that feels like if I can't be the best in relationships, the best in athletics and the best in academics and the best in how I look and the, the best in my swag and the best in you know, how I dress and the best in what I, I drive, watch, if I can't be the best, I'll be rejected. And so here's what happens. This is why this room is such an interesting place tonight. Because we are all in a place where we are scared to death to be real. It's a place full of secrets. And if I may add, not just spiritually, but physically, secrets make you sick. In fact, neurology tells us this. I've got a picture of a brain. Now, I am not a brain, you know, I'm not a brain expert, but I have done some research on this, so y'all are about to learn something. All right, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. You have, you and I have this cingulate cortex right here. Um, it's this blue and orange area of your brain. Your cingulate cortex is wired to tell the truth. So every one of us in this room has a part of us that really want, it's, it's called the logic lobe, okay? And it is wired to tell the truth. But here's what happens. What happens is that when you and I start experiencing something that may mean that we feel a, a, a risk of abandonment or rejection, then here's what happens. Your prefrontal cortex gets involved. Your prefrontal cortex is literally your decision maker. It's, it's the emotion hub. It's, it's the wisdom or foolishness hub. And what winds up happening in all of us in this room is that when there's a war between those two cortexes, when your logic globe says, I should, I should tell the truth, I have a secret and I know that this is risky, but I need to tell the truth. Your prefrontal cortex turns around and goes, that's the dumbest thing that you could ever do and you need to keep your mouth shut because you're risking too much. And what most of us don't understand is that when that happens, Physically, you have a hormone released inside of you that makes you physically sick. And even more so, when you pile secrets on top of secrets, because isn't it interesting how secrets work? You have to tell one, and then you have to tell another one to protect that one. And then you have to tell two more to protect those two. So much so that there are a lot of us in this room tonight and you don't even know what the truth is anymore because you've had to tell so many secrets. Secret upon secret upon secret upon secret. Every time you do that, you're releasing this hormone in your body and you're, you become sick. In fact, here's what the research tells us. Did we lose everything? And that's okay if we did. Research tells us that people that have frequent headaches, this is true, people that have frequent headaches, keep rolling, frequent headaches, runny noses, bouts of diarrhea, and back pain may have a ton of secrets. So right now, everybody's like, you know, oh, you know. <laughs> is that the Mexican food or do I have secrets, right? You're, Girls, it's a great way for you to test your, you know, your boys like, girl, you know you're fine. Why is your nose running, you know? Do you have to go to the bathroom all the time? But it makes you physically ill. And maybe that's why 
there are scores of us that are battling because we're in this place where we didn't want to feel abandoned and we didn't want to feel rejected. And so we just decided to keep something hidden. It could be a habit. It could be a thought. It could be a him. It could be a her. It could be a them. It could be a place. It could be your past. It could be your now. And it may be even something that you desire to do. And you've made yourself ill because you just can't be honest. In fact, there's so much tension in the room because all of us know there's something in our life that I'm just not sure I can tell anybody and still be loved and accepted. Jewish history tells us that the second king of Israel, a guy by the name of David, David, um, the scriptures say, In fact, it's the only person that the scriptures say David was a man after God's own heart. That's an incredible epitaph, by the way, to have on your your tombstone. Rest in peace, this dude loved God. But David also was an idiot with hair. He made a ton of mistakes, which gives all of us hope. And some of us know this story, but there was a point in David's life when he was the king of God's people. He should have been out at war, and he stands up on a balcony, and he sees a Drop dead gorgeous bow, chicka, bow, woman taking a shower. Her name was Bathsheba. Some of you know this story, even if you haven't read the Bible. You, he sees Bathsheba, and he does what kings in that day generally did. I have to have her. Problem was, Bathsheba was married to a dude named Uriah, who was a military officer and was at war where David should have been as the king. So what does David do? He has Bathsheba brought to his quarters, they sleep together, and she gets pregnant. It is real housewives of Jerusalem County, okay? (laughs) So, without Nene. All right, so, so she gets pregnant, and so what does he decide to do? I've already got a secret. I I shouldn't have done this. I'm just going to compound the secret. And some of you know the story. He finagles it so that Uriah comes off the front line. He tries to get him to sleep with Bathsheba so that he can cover up what's happened. That doesn't happen because Uriah is too loyal. So then he decides, you know what? That was my plan. That was my secret plan. I'll have another secret plan. I'll send him to the front in the very heat of battle and hopefully he'll get killed. And that plan works. Uriah is killed. And David is thinking, my secret is safe now. I'm going to be okay. Except, and this will happen for all of us in the room that have secrets. God has a way of making sure that you live the life that you were purposed to live to this degree, that somebody's going to roll into your life that is more concerned about you than they are their relationship with you. Because there's a difference, college students, because you can have all the boys that you have, dude, your boys hurt, hurt. You can have all that that you want, but a lot of our friends, fellas, are much more concerned about our friendship with them than they are us. And girls, there are a ton of you, you roll in herds, you've been doing it since the beginning of time, you go to the bathroom together, uh, y'all, y'all, but here's the thing, you have a score of friends that care more about their relationship with you than they do you. 
And there is this godly man in David's life. His name is Nathan. He's considered a prophet. And Nathan tells David a story. And he says, there was this one guy who had a, a, a sheep. And it wasn't just like a farm animal to him. It was his pet. He kept it so close to his heart. He cared for it like his own child. He loved this animal. Then there was a rich guy who owned a ton of sheep. He could have as many sheep as he wanted. A traveler comes by one day and he's hungry. And the rich guy, he asked the rich guy for food. And instead of the rich guy giving him, you know, making lamb chops out of the scores of lambs that he has, he decides to take the pet from this poor man and feed the traveler. And Nathan tells the story to David. And then he says, what would you do if that was you know, in your hands as king. And David loses his mind. I would absolutely destroy the rich man. How awful is that? And Nathan, after David paints himself in a corner, says this to to, to David. You're that guy. You ever had a friend like that that kind of backs you in the corner? Like, they're like, shame, shame. I know everything. David was that dude, or Nathan was that dude in David's life. He says, you're that guy, because I know what you've done. And you've got tons of secrets, David, but you've got a choice right now. You can either bring those things out in the open, but the problem is the problem that David has is the same problem that all of us in this room have. For a lot of us, what we have done is we have compounded secret on top of secret on top of secret, and this is the way we love to use Jesus. And I am so grateful that there are times, isn't it amazing, that in God's grace and his sovereignty, there are times when Jesus decides, despite how many secrets you have in your life, he still decides to go, you know what, I'm going I'm to extend grace and mercy to you, and you're not going to pay any consequences. But for most of us in this room, here's the heads up. David comes to his senses and he goes, you're right. I've sinned. And you get the sense when you read this in 2 Samuel that David is thinking, I have sinned and God, remember me, I'm the man after your own heart. Why don't you extend some grace and mercy to me? But Nathan gives him some bad news, and here's why I've got to be a little tough with all of us in this room, because I care more about you. Nathan says this to him. Nathan says, this is what the Lord says. Because of what you've done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. See, we think we can keep our secrets under control, when in reality, your secrets may be fine while you're in college, but here's the heads up. How many of you in this room one day want to get married? Look around, prospects. All right, now watch. (laughs) You too, me too, let's. Okay, right? (laughs) But check this out. All of those secrets that you have right now in college that nobody knows about, you're going to take them into your marriage. You're taking them into every new friendship. And there could be consequences. And I'm not, I promise you, this is not me. I'm not trying to scare you or to shame you. It's just reality. And here's how I know it's reality. Because I have been married almost 25 years. And the secrets that Kelly and I brought into marriage eventually come to light. And you pay the price. 
And here you are as a collegiate, and you have a chance. You have a chance to decide. I'm not going to let this be my story. I don't want to be on Alcatraz anymore with this. Nathan says to him, I'll give your wife, listen, you, I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. That's harsh. And by the way, if you don't think that that, if it was just, you know, he was speaking in anger and he really didn't mean that, it happened. It happened. Because secrets have a way of eventually becoming such a big deal that they're way outside your control. And what's interesting for all of us, and I'm with you, the only reason I'm standing up here is so that you can see me because I am just like you. What most of us fail to think about, and this is such an important principle, is that God sees the heart. God sees your heart tonight, college student. God sees your heart tonight, dude. God sees your heart tonight, girls. And so the thing that you think you've kept secret, the one that matters the most, the one that breathed life into you, gave you the heartbeat that you have, gave you the mind that you have, gave you the body that you have, and has a purpose and a plan for your life, already sees what's going down. So you're really not keeping a secret. But we think... I've got secrets and nobody knows. The other thing that's interesting is that secrets have, this, have the same moral brevity. They have the same moral defect as public shame. We think as long as it doesn't go public, it's not as powerful. But I want to remind you that in Jesus, uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 talks about this idea. You heard it said, do not kill. But I tell you this, if you've ever had anger in your heart, it's like you've murdered someone. His point was this, the same thing that causes you to murder, just because it's a secret, it's still the same thing. It still is the same moral defect. So for every young lady in this room that it's like, you know what, I'm not a murderer. Well, if you've ever had anger, because girls, I know, y'all can, y'all can go from zero to whoa real quick. You can go, I will, you know, right? It'll change. <laughs> And for all the guys that are going, you are telling the truth, dude. Girls are crazy. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you ever lusted in your heart, it's like you've committed adultery. <laughs> and all the girls are like, oh, God. He just went there. Because the secret is just as powerful as the shame. And furthermore, that's God calling. Um, furthermore, secrets have compounding interest. What would have not been as big of a deal because you had to keep hiding it and pile a secret on top of a secret, on top of a secret, on top of a secret. It, it, it's like this. I, I'll go quick. But here's the deal. If, if, if I give you, yeah, you look scared. I'm going to give it to you. All right. If I give you a pair of handcuffs and I tell you to put these on, but here are the keys. 
I want you, all right, all right, put, the, put these on. I want you to put the handcuffs on and hear the keys. See, here's what I know about, tell me your name, sweetheart. Dominique. Dominique. Dominique, put, put the handcuffs on. There's nothing weird going on, all right? If she puts those handcuffs on and she has the keys, then that's not as big of a deal. Why? Because she may be constrained for a second, but anytime she wants to get out, she can get out. That's the equivalent of you sitting here tonight, me standing here tonight, and going, you know what? I've got a secret, and I've got to deal with this now before it compounds on itself. Because if you don't do that, and where most of us live our life, it winds up being like this. That's one thing. But it's a completely different thing. Love you, buddy. And tell me your name. Burkwan. Oh. So, fur coat over here. Um, <laughs> we're just going to call you Meek, all right? So, so for Quan, listen, here's the difference. You can get out anytime you want to, but here's what he would tell you if he's honest. That's so heavy that you're already tired of it. Why? Because secrets upon secrets upon secrets upon secrets has compounding interest. And you have a choice tonight. I can stop. You can take it off if you want to. (laughs) I can stop this now. I can stop this now. Or I can wind up like that. And by the way, as silly as it is that Furquan has chains on him that are really, really heavy, be careful not to judge quickly. Because a lot of you will choose to walk out of the room tonight with those kind of emotional and spiritual chains on because of the secrets that you've refused to deal with. Because here's what happens. When you start getting honest about this, when you decide, I'm I'm going to deal with this, I'm going to get to whatever that secret is in me, then here's what you start attacking. You start attacking things like guilt. Because most of us in this room, most of us in this room, because of choices that we've made and secrets that we've kept, isn't it interesting the number that guilt can do on you? To this degree, that there are absolutely drop-dead gorgeous, looking, drop-dead gorgeous girls looking at me right now, and you've had incredible guys walk into your life and want a relationship with you. Not some crazy relationship, but a, an unbelievable friendship that may have a future. And you feel so guilty that you sabotage it all the time. And can I tell you why? Because chains are heavy. And you don't feel worthy. But when you deal with your secrets, you start chipping away at the guilt. Not only that, but you start helping yourself as it relates to others. Because for most of us in this room, as it relates to our secrets, it's not just you that pays the price. 
It's not just you that's paying the price now. In fact, I'll take it another step. Some of you have been asked by people who care about you. Is there something going on? And you've lied to them because you wanted to keep a secret a secret. And here's what happens. The more that you tell that lie to cover that secret, the more you're offending the person that's trying to help. Furthermore, most of us didn't do the things that we have kept secret by ourselves. Generally speaking, the sin or the choices or the decisions that we made were not made in isolation. Somebody else was involved. And to take it one step further, if you ever are found out, what happens when somebody else has to out you instead of you? So your ability to deal with secrets the way God has designed us to deal with them, you're protecting or you're chipping away at guilt, you're chipping away or you're protecting others, and you're also keeping your offenses to a minimum. Because all of us in this room know that the longer we let this go, the more people are offended and the more I'm just destroying my capacity in the future, to be honest. So maybe it makes sense when James says this. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. And I love this part. So that you can be healed. Confess your sins. In other words, come clean. Get it out in the open. But Stuart, you have no idea how many years of secrets I have. You're exactly right, I don't. But what I do know is this, that the longer that that stays there, the less likely you are to be healed. Well, Stuart, I'll just tell it to God. That's a great person to go to, by the way. Because he's the only one that can completely forgive you. But for most of us in this room, the work is much deeper than that. There's somebody that you need to talk to. Maybe it's the person that offended you or you offended or you, know, you, you, you need to ask forgiveness of someone. But James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can be healed. I'm gonna leave you with this. Three things and then I'm gonna get off the stage. Here's the first one. What is not confessed openly generally becomes out in the open anyway. Generally speaking, what you don't confess in the open, at some point somebody's going to find out and you're going to get outed. And some of us have had that happen to us before. And that is an an incredibly precarious place to be. And it's also an unbelievably painful place to be, which leads to my second point. Second point is this. Confession hurts. Concealment hurts more. Confession hurts. It is, it is, it is intimidating. You fear fear, you feel fear to go. Here's the thing that I got going on. To see hurt and shock and sometimes embarrassment in the eyes of a loved one that you share, that hurts. But can I tell you what hurts more? Concealing it. Concealing it. 
Because pride conceals. Humility reveals. Pride conceals. Humility reveals. And what you're really after in your relationships with your friends, what you're really after with your relationship with your future spouse that almost every single person to a person raised their hand and said that you want one day, and what you're really after with your creator who loves you so much that he provided a way for you to be forgiven of your secrets. What you're really after is intimacy. Intimacy is knowing and being fully known without any fear of rejection. Because all of us fear abandonment and all of us fear rejection and we keep it at arm's length and we'll push it down and no one will ever know. And the heartbreaking part of tonight is that some of us will choose to be a spiritual, emotional Mary Shepherd for the rest of our life just because we can't find the courage to go. I gotta tell you something. I gotta confess something. And as someone, I come from a family that has made lying a profession. I have uh, two brothers that are convicted felons. Uh, one of them <laughs> kept the crime that he committed secret from our family for a year and just happened to get outed at the same time that my mom was diagnosed with cancer and was beginning the downhill slope toward death. When my brother got outed, my dad had a heart attack just because of that secret that he had kept. And I always think about this. What if he had just been honest when it happened? What if he had just been honest? And what I wish that I could show you tonight is my mom's funeral and my brother's face and his emotion. Because here's what he realized. Concealing hurts more. Concealing hurts more. For him to think that my mom left this earth not knowing what was true and him not trusting enough to just go, Mom, I know you love me and I'm going to trust. So here. But there is no greater freedom, college student, there is no greater freedom than the freedom of being fully known. Your future marriage will depend on what I just said. Its health, its trajectory, its depth will depend on that. Your relationships that you think are so tight right now hinge on that capacity for you to be fully known. And our relationship with Jesus is built on our capacity. Our God knows you completely. He just wants you to go, this is me. Mess, crap, and all. So Jesus, here's what I pray for all of us in this room. This is not an easy thing for us to deal with. It's not, um, 
We wish, Spirit of God, that you would snap your fingers and we would be healed, that there would be no collateral damage, that nobody else would be hurt. We wish, Jesus, that you would intervene in those places where we've made a mess. But I'm grateful tonight that you give me some responsibility to get off Alcatraz. And that responsibility rests in this one word, to confess. So Spirit of God, I pray that you would give courage to these incredible young men and women. All of us have secrets. And many of us are scared to death to be honest. So would you give us courage to have a tough conversation, to be real, for some of us for the first time. I pray for that for the young lady or young man who sits here and they may have been abused in some way, emotionally, sexually, physically, and they've never told a soul, but their heart and their body is sick because of that secret. Any of us in this room, God, that has been assaulted or raped and we've never told a soul, would you give that young lady, that young man courage? And for those of us who've made some really dumb choices and we've kept those things secret and they haunt us, would you give us courage as well that we would go and confess to somebody and God, give us fast feet to do it tonight. And I thank you, Jesus, I thank you that the cross and an empty grave serves as a constant never-ending reminder that grace is mine because of you.